bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I am Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Sir Yoda. Are you excited about today's show? I certainly am. I a very, very educated man coming on the show today. <laughs> I always like speaking to a good doctor. Indeed. Today's guest is a current member of the Investment Committee for the London Energy Efficiency Fund and past trustee of the National Energy Foundation. He earned a PhD through the University of Stirling, a diploma in sustainable management through the University of Cambridge, and a Bachelor of Science through the University of Birmingham. He has over 30 years experience in energy efficiency and finance and is founder and managing partner at Energy Pro Limited, which helps to accelerate investment into energy transition, especially in energy and resource efficiency. Welcome to the show, Mr. Stephen Fox. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. Stephen, we always ask our high achievers to tell us their story because our listeners want to get some wisdom out of this show, but also to hear how you got to where you're going. So tell us your story. Okay, well, I uh, grew up wanting to be an astronaut, but that was a bit of a hard (laughs) career choice at the time, especially growing up in Britain. And uh, in the 70s, we, of course, had the oil crisis, both in in particular in 73. In Britain, we had the three-day week where we only had electricity for three days a week. And that had a big impact. I decided that energy was a big topic to work on and uh, would be a problem for the rest of my life, at least, and, and give me a career. So I actually studied a degree at Birmingham, which was pretty unusual at the time, specifically about energy. And... Then, having said I'd never do a PhD, was offered a place in a PhD at Stirling, which was about industry and energy efficiency in industry. And it just gave me the freedom to go around lots of different companies, talking to them about what they'd done about energy management and so on. And so it just seemed that having done a kind of broad degree about energy, energy efficiency was a kind of new subject in a way, although of course in other ways it's quite old, but it seemed a worthwhile problem to work on and pretty much been working on it ever since really. So um, then did some consultancy after that, started developing big energy management programs for corporates and local authorities. And uh, then after we privatized the oil and gas, or rather the electricity and gas industry here, energy prices went down and energy conservation or energy efficiency all but disappeared. And I spent four years working in Romania on energy efficiency. After the wall came down, there was a lot of EU and other money flowing into Eastern Europe. 
And again, that was an interesting and kind of purposeful time, really, helping them sort out some of the problems of 50 years of communism and improving energy efficiency. And then came back to the UK, got involved in energy services and helped put together some big energy services projects originally for Enron. And then when Enron collapsed, um, spun them into an RWE company and built an energy services business on the back of it. And I'd always been on that sort of interaction with the finance side because energy services is all about financing. And uh, in 2007, I actually joined the financial services industry as an analyst and then in corporate finance and uh, help companies raise money, advise them, things like that. So I got much more involved in the capital raising side. And then in 2012, the two things really came together. The whole financing agenda was coming up the um, up to the top of the agenda again, and so formed Energy Pro specifically to focus on that interaction between energy efficiency and finance and bringing the two things together. So that was it. <laughs> okay, that's, that's interesting because the reason I, I specifically wanted you to come onto the podcast was to talk about the money side. Because it's a, it's a subject that you see engineers and design teams, particularly in the built environment, struggling with energy issues. But it's very rarely you hear the industry talk about the financial side and about investment and the bigger themes. But before we do that, I just want to explain something to our international listeners. I remember I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Yes, I'm old. And I remember the three-day week. So there was a period in the UK which had access to North Sea oil at that point where there was an energy crisis where there was only power for three days a week. So if you were running a business, you could only produce three days a week. Just think about that. People freak out if they lose the internet for 10 minutes nowadays. Mm. Yeah, yeah. sure. it's, It's crazy. Now, I started work in 1980, which was on the back end of that crisis. So at the time, when you look back, we were coming out of that crisis. But the influence of that energy crisis in the early 80s on building design was quite profound. You know, it it moved the industry away from single glazing. It, it moved people towards more energy-efficient equipment. And the energy-efficiency angle of things is important, but the cost of energy and then the investment in green tech and clean tech really is the macro issue, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? I think the issue is about increasing the amount of investment that goes into energy and resource efficiency and, and of course, wider sustainability things relative to the investment that goes into energy supply. So energy supply has always been very investable and energy efficiency has not been investable. And that's for lots of reasons, some of which we can talk about. Um, I think we're making it more investable. That's sort of one of our purposes, really, is making it more investable. That's a really interesting worldview, actually. So what you're saying there, energy supply is investable because it's large capital projects, right? Whereas efficiency, not so much. So what? Yep. how do you financialize investing in efficiency? Now, bear in mind, I listened to a podcast yesterday about Chile and how the uh, it's, a, it's a very – sort of free market economy. And in Chile, you can go and buy a Big Mac and pay for it in nine installments. <clears throat> and they've in, they, so they financialize the purchase of a Big Mac. So why can't we financialize energy efficiency? Well, I think we have started on that route. And, the, and there's a couple of models that have been used, but they, they only really work in certain circumstances. And I'm maybe trying to explain a bit more. The energy supply is, as you say, investable. It tends to be big chunks of capital, and you can stick a meter on it, or you can count the number of barrels of oil coming out of an oil well, or you can Mm. stick a meter on a wind turbine and and measure it. Energy efficiency, of course, is actually the absence of something. It's a counterfactual that is sometimes and and traditionally has been actually quite hard to prove. So, So that's one issue with it. It's actually hard to meter although that's changing. And it's also in very small lumps of capital. So it could be everything down to a single or a few LED lamps, for instance, could be an energy efficiency investment. And if you're institutional capital looking for a home, it's a lot easier to deploy 100 million 
pounds or dollars or euros into a big wind farm than it is to deploy 100 million into lots of little tiny little projects. So small scale of projects is a major problem. Lack of metering or measurability really has been a problem. So those are the things that I think we're beginning to see some answers to. The, the way that it's traditionally been financed and most people, when they hear this topic, if they, if they know anything about it, immediately talk about energy performance contracts. And energy performance contracts and contracting has been around a long time, really started in the U.S., and then spread very widely because, well, actually in the period I was working in Romania, the U.S. government through USAID spent a lot of money promoting the idea of energy performance contracts. And energy performance contracts are where the contractor develops a big project and charges a capital cost for it but brings in external financing. And then the client gets the benefit but they get a guaranteed level of savings, but they're still paying enough to pay off the capital. Mm. Um, so energy performance contracts have been around a long time, and it works in certain circumstances. It particularly works in the public sector. It tends to be for very big projects like hospitals, and it's a sort of known entity. But if we're going to really address this problem of multiplying the amount of capital that goes into energy efficiency and you know we need to double it by 2025 and then double it again after that we need to come up with different models of how to finance it and there are lots of different types of ideas and different types of money looking to do this now okay Stephen, you know have you looked at the impact of local cultures on some of the solutions in other words the European community, particularly the Nordic countries, seem to have an infrastructure that lends itself well to investments in energy efficiency, but not so much in North America. Our infrastructures tend to be more independent, more widely spread. It's not like we're dealing with Denmark where it's easy to have cogen and district energy systems, this type of thing. So where does culture play into this investment? And and ultimately, we're talking about worldwide access to money here for these programs. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, culture and specificness of different areas and different sectors is always important. But, you know, energy performance contracting in its classical form really grew out of the U.S. and North America. I think what I see is that there are a number of factors that you have to bring together in one place to make this flow at scale. And I, and I see examples all around the world, but they're not all the same, same model. So, you know, this high idea of small projects, you need to be able to aggregate projects together or make a big enough scale to make it interesting. You have mm. to bring in some kind of standardization because every financial market works on standardization. You couldn't have a market for mortgages or car loans if they weren't all standardized. And then you need to kind of build capacity in the supply side and the demand side. And different countries and different regions and different actors have kind of come up with different solutions in different parts of the world, but they all kind of bring them together. Yeah. And talk about some of the some of the examples. So a standardized finance packages, how do you see what do you maybe describe what that means to our listeners? Well, I think standardization comes in in different elements. One thing, and this is another barrier that energy efficiency has compared to energy supply, is a lack of standardization in the way that projects are developed and documented. Mm. So I kind of joke in whatever building I'm in and I say, well, if you had four energy efficiency experts developing projects for this building, even if they were all doing lighting, you'd end up with six different ways of calculating it and, and <laughs> developing and documenting <laughs> the, the project. And, and if you're an investor, and particularly if you're an investor looking at small projects, that is, well, it, quite honestly, it makes it almost impossible because you have to evaluate every single project. So, mm -hmm. so the standardization of the way projects are developed and documented, and we've started to address that through an international project called the Investor Confidence Project. 
Mm. Um, but there's also standardization of contracts. You know, again, it's like my car lane example. If every car lane in the world or in a country had a completely different contract, well, there just wouldn't be a market for car lanes at the scale that we could because you'd go into your car dealer and spend five days figuring out the contract and have to hire your lawyers and they'd have to hire their lawyers and, you know, that doesn't work for a mass market. Actually, just again, for the benefit of our listeners, this might sound, if you're young and fresh out of university, sound fanciful, but standardisation is important. So just so you know, I mean, there is not even agreement worldwide on how to measure the area of a building for mm-hmm. letting purposes, right? The Royal Institute of Chart Surveyors have a standard. The US has different standards and approaches. I'm consulting on a project, an office building in Africa at the moment, where there's a big dispute over this. So, you know, if you can't even agree how to calculate the area of a building internationally, you know, this is a, a mark of how difficult it is to get standardization. Now, mm-hmm. this, to me, is this analogous to, say, microloans and finance, right? So, you know, if you've got a lot of capital deploy, you're like Berkshire Hathaway, you're, you're Warren Buffett, you know, you need billion-dollar deals, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. or you're lending money, you're a bank, you're Barclays, you want big multi-million-dollar deals. But there was some innovation in microfinance, right? Is there not a way, is there not a similar innovation path, sort of like the microfinance to be like a micro-project? So is that yeah, and, and and I've seen you know several initiatives for that. Different people are working on it, and again in different parts of the world, it is about creating a platform that makes everything standardised and is easy to use. And of course, these days will be digital and in the cloud and all the rest of it. And you know there are some examples out there where people are doing that, but it has to be standardised in the way it's contracted and the way it's developed and documented so that the investor has, well, really minimal transaction cost. And the the other analogy I would make is also in the wind industry. If you develop a wind farm, there's a very standardized way of doing it. You get your data for a year and you do a P90 analysis and every bank that funds wind farms in the world recognize this. But in 1990 and 91, when we started doing the really early wind farms, nobody had developed that standardized approach. We kind of made it up as, as we went along, as did the bank. <laughs> but there was only like one bank that would do it because nobody else knew what a wind turbine was. And now there are, I would say, hundreds, but that might be an exaggeration. There are dozens of banks in London, for instance, that you go to and they would have a wind team and they would all use this standardized approach to evaluate the risk and the, and the value of the investment. So the way I'm understanding at the moment is there's a, a pool of money is available, right? It's accessing it and being consistent in how it's asked and processed. Yeah, and I think that there's a really important point about the pool of money. Certainly when, you know, when I was starting up and even until fairly recently, the standard response of people involved in energy efficiency often would be, there's no money. Well, I'm telling you, there is no shortage of money in the world. It may not feel like it personally always, but there is no shortage of money. There's, I think it's something like $12 trillion worth of bonds that are getting negative interest rates. So there's huge pools of capital and bigger and bigger proportions of those pools of capital looking for sustainable investments and beginning to recognize energy efficiency as a potential part of that and a very good part of that on paper. But again, how do you go, you know, you've got to create a platform that can deploy big amounts of capital and that, and it made up of hundreds of tiny projects. And when I say tiny, they could be, you know, even in the, in the worlds of the institutional investor, even a 5 million project is tiny. Right. So, Stephen, for these institutional investors where they're talking about billions and trillions of dollars, certainly having confidence in the standardization, which you've talked about, both in the project development, but also in the contracts, management of these contracts, that helps in the confidence. But what are the what are the good questions that these institutional investors are asking in terms of risk and rewards? So if I've got whatever, say a trillion dollars I want to invest in a project, what are the questions am I asking of these uh, these investment opportunities? Well, I, I think the first general one, and then we can talk a bit more specifics, is about what are the risks and understanding the risks. And 
again, in the, let's say, the early days of energy efficiency or energy management, we used to always say, oh, there are no risks. Mm. And, and in fact, I have a textbook from the 80s, and it says something to the effect of energy efficiency investments essentially have no risk. Well, if you can find any investment that has a positive return and no risk, you should put your money into it. <laughs> we all know that everything has a risk. you know. And energy efficiency projects, you have a really big performance risk. And that partly comes from the sort of design and performance gap. People predict a certain level of savings and it doesn't happen. There's partly the effect of all the external variables, not the least of which is weather, which at least we know how to deal with that. But, you know, somebody comes along and starts using the building differently. That's a risk. And then there's all the financial risks, like credit risk. But financial institutions are really, really good at handling that. What they're not so good at and I think the industry is not so good at even now, is understanding the performance risk and minimizing that performance risk. Because a lot of you know, energy efficiency projects that were sold on a, a really good return actually have not delivered. And partly because we don't measure it, we don't have the data. And the financial world always says, show me the data. And I was in meetings in the US in 2011, 2012, where this kind of bringing the two sides together for some of the first times and the financial guys saying, oh, we, we need data. And the energy efficiency guys say, oh, yeah, we've got lots of data. Um, show it to us. It's like, well, we've got these case studies or we've done this much project, but there is or was and still is not much actual data on actual performance that you could hand over to a financial institution and they'd have some analysts crunch the numbers for it two days and tell you what the you know the standard deviation of the IRR was and what were the factors that caused it, which is exactly the same kind of analysis they would do on any other investment. But the energy efficiency, so the risk factors and understanding the risk, I think both sides have still got a long way to go really. Yeah, money is a game of risk management. That was made very clear to me in my early days, actually. <laughs> and it doesn't care about your feelings, right? Money just wants to know what's the risk, it wants to quantify it, it wants to manage it, and it's very simple. So I hate to say this, but does the Internet of Things sort of fix this to some degree when we can deploy at very low cost, you know, networked metering and sensors everywhere? Does that start to solve this measurement issue, maybe? I think the... That and obviously just data and, and computing power is starting to help. And again, we're starting to see models now emerge that are based on that and are starting to produce this level of data that in time, and of course it takes time to collect data, but in time will give the financial institutions this kind of performance data that we need. And, you know, it's been kind of characterized and I characterize energy efficiency investments are you buy some stuff and you hope it works because you don't buy energy efficiency you buy insulation or a boiler or some controls and you usually don't really measure the result very well if at all so you buy stuff and hope it works well the investment world doesn't work like that they want to know what the results are so what we're beginning to see again coming out of well, particularly, as always, California and then now other parts of the US, it's this sort of metered efficiency approach where projects are being metered with smart metered data and using very open source, commonly agreed algorithms for defining what is a saving. And then that gives the program managers, the state government or whoever's funding the stuff, more confidence. And it also allows the utility which, of course, utilities traditionally have been very negative on efficiency, whatever their PR department might say, they're negative. But it allows the utility to really understand what's happening and ultimately to contract that level of savings on a pay-for-performance basis. So this pay-for-performance model is spreading quite quickly and it is really exciting because then I'm no longer paying for stuff and hoping it works. I'll just say I'll pay for the actual negative hours, as we've always talked about, negative hours that you've delivered to me. Hmm. But you have to have a measurement and metering and you have to have sort of commonly agreed measurement. It's like why is a kilogram or a pound weight 
a pound weight or a kilogram is because we all kind of had some big international conference and decided that's what it was. You know? yeah. Stephen and Adam, I have a question for both of you guys, and I don't even actually know how to define the question, but it seems to me there could, I mean, there's the perform, there's the energy performance of property development, but then there's also the performance of the indoor environment as it relates to the occupant, the human factor design elements that we talk about oftentimes on this podcast. So there seems to me there's a there's a tension there. There's also a potential there to either improve buildings or destroy the quality of the indoor environment for the sake of a return on an investment. And I'm struggling with trying to define what my brain is actually trying to see here, but it just seems to me that you know we design and construct these buildings. There's an energy component there. There's a reduction in energy, which can be an investment. But at the same time, we have occupants occupying these buildings and operating them. Can you guys see that there's a potential there to either improve buildings through performances or destroy them at the same time? I'll go first there, because what came to me was benchmarking is a big issue here, right? So if you're going to measure something, you've got to start with a benchmark, and then you've got to show an improvement on the benchmark, right, to get the thing. And then going to your point, Robert, I mean, energy supplied to a building is an enabler for that building to work. But what I think you're saying is you can design it all you like, but there's other factors such as persistence of performance of the systems, which is depending on use and maintenance. And then there's user interference, right? There's so many variables in this equation, which I guess brings me back to benchmarking and then maintaining performance against a benchmark, right? To meet a financial goal. Does that make any sense, Dune? Yes, I think there's a couple of things there. I think, again, traditionally... The two things of efficiency and air quality, you know, sometimes have been working against each other, and and you see controversial papers or articles come out every so often. And we know we kind of oversealed our buildings in the past, but I think we've definitely moved away from that. And clearly, indoor air quality and indoor environment is really important, and that that really takes me into a couple of things. One of the big problems in the energy efficiency financing world. We know the potential to save energy is there. We know the money is there. And we think there are certain mechanisms for putting the two together. But unless anybody is actually wanting to buy it and demand it, it doesn't happen. And a few years ago, I came up with this sudden realization that energy efficiency is the most boring thing on the planet for 99.999% of the people, 99.999% of the time. And therefore, it will never sell in its own. It just doesn't. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to buy some energy efficiency. (laughs) You might wake up in the morning and say, I'd like to renovate my kitchen or new bathroom or new iPad or a new Tesla or whatever you want to buy, but you don't wake up and say energy efficiency. And so the other part of this jigsaw is how do you create demand? And I think the key to that is non-energy benefits. So those non-energy benefits of which air quality and employee satisfaction, customer satisfaction, even the asset value of the building, there's a myriad of non-energy benefits which are specific to each situation. But when you start talking about those benefits to decision makers, they can get excited about them. So if you say, okay, I can make your office have a nicer environment with better indoor air quality and et cetera, et cetera, and you start to see there's an impact on staff retention, staff retention costs probably more than energy in lots of organizations or or lack of staff retention. And so you can start to sell strategic non-energy benefits and then say, oh, and by the way, your utility costs will be 30% less or 50% less. But what you're really selling, and I think this is the real key, sell the non-energy benefits first and then kind of say, oh, by the way, there's some energy efficiency. Because decision makers buy that stuff, whether they're corporate decision makers or even householders what you actually want from your home okay you do want low energy bills and you care about the environment so you want to minimize the environmental impact of energy but what you really want is a high performing home that is comfortable and nice place to be in and that's what you want in a commercial building as well so non-energy benefits 
Adam knows I'm dancing right now. Yeah, exactly. And exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> so, Stephen, I that you just spoke exactly the DNA of my existence for the rest of my career, which is going to last maybe a couple more years. <laughs> and uh, and the messages that we've been communicating to the engineering and architectural community is that the energy efficiency should be the natural outcome of creating really good indoor environmental spaces. Mm-hmm. and not the exclusive goal itself. And what we're finding is that in case studies, in really good buildings where the human factor was the North Star in the design process is that these buildings also delivered excellent energy conservation. And we know that there's buildings out there where energy conservation was the North Star, but ultimately delivered bad indoor environments. The lighting was bad. The sound was bad. The air quality was bad. And it was all done for this for the sake of reducing energy. And so I am just, well, Adam knows I have the huge grin on my face right now. Your, <laughs> me- your, your message yeah. is global. It, it resonates with everybody on the planet. And I'm so Absolutely. happy to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think but it was a bit of a blow though after thirty years to realize energy efficiency was so dull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I think you've done a really good job of explaining how nebulous energy efficiency is because it's basically an emergent property, right, mm-hmm. of of a combination of multiple things. Now, this is this is where it gets onto a couple of things that are hot topics for me. So, yeah, the genius. I have a love hate relationship with lead. The uh, you know the green building mm-hmm. performance system, but part of its genius is that it made energy efficiency, or that's just one factor within lead. Let's be clear, mm-hmm. yeah, it made energy efficiency something you wanted. It made it something you chased, right? It was something to be proud of. If you had a lead platinum or lead gold building, that says something about the energy efficiency and what the building was. And similar in the UK, when they bought in the um, energy uh, codes, you know, the A, B, C, D, E, F. What did they call that? Performance certificates. Energy. Yeah, the performance certificates. I've been out of the UK 12 years now, so I'm a bit foggy on it. It but, was that EU that brought them in. <laughs> yeah, good old EU. Well, yeah, we'll see where that goes now. But I heard a story, and I don't know how true this is, when I was back in the UK a few years ago, that the government, they were mandated to be displayed publicly, right? So you could walk in and see how the building was doing. And most of the government buildings were doing so bad that they took them down. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that story, but I think the most important piece of legislation and policy has been minimum energy efficiency standards where from whenever it was, 1st of April, you know, if you were below a set level and I've forgotten which level it is, it, technically you could not sell or lease that building or rent that building. Now, there are issues about enforcement and how strong it's going to be enforced, but that is an incredibly powerful policy driver, and it links directly to finance, because if you have that and you have a kind of increasing standard that this year it's Fs that you can't sell F or G, and next year it's E, F, and G, whatever, that's powerful. But it's powerful to the financial world, and I'll give you a very specific example. In the Netherlands, they have that, and... ING, corporate real estate finance, which is a massive lender to commercial offices. And it has come up with a policy where they actually help their borrowers with low-performing buildings improve them. And the reason they do that is they see the risk of stranded asset. So. Yes. You know what they you don't want to be ING having lent some property company, I don't know, hundred million on a building and find they can't rent it or sell it. If you, if they do, then you ING have a, or, or the lender has a problem. So the lenders are now starting to look at that and this plays directly into the tagging of assets, which is a really hot topic. Again, lots of good work being done by the European Commission on this, which we're peripherally involved in, but there's a a tagging and taxonomy of assets. But once you start to be able to tag assets, then the banks can look at their risk profile. And the two things that motivate banks are obviously reward, but also risk. Um, And then the regulator can also say, well, let me look at your risk profile. You've lent money on all these E's and F buildings. And in two years' time, they're not even going to be able to be sold. You've got a big risk problem there. So that kind of 
financial regulation is kind of coming together with the building regulation in a way in those in those countries where it's being enforced. Has there been any big impact on large portfolio, property portfolio net asset valuations so far? I think well, there's been a lot of people playing monopoly. So the what I would call the more responsible property portfolio owners have basically sold or started a renovation program on all their low-performing buildings. And then you get a bunch in the middle who probably don't care. And then you get ones at the back end who doubly don't care and will, I don't know, I shouldn't say this, but they probably not even bother to report it or put the UPC up or or whatever. Yeah, there'd be a, a rash of insurance claims. By a dodgy EPC or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There could be a lot of mysterious fires at the low end of the property market in the future. <laughs> that could be true, yeah. yeah. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. I love that terminology, stranded assets. Now, this is where culture comes back into play, because the UK and the EU have always been a lot more top-down with being able to push out legislation in North America, in the US and Canada, the lobbying and the fact that basically Canada is 10 provinces bolted together and the US is 51 states bolted together. You know, you've got more layers of government to get through there. So to push through like tagging and energy sort of penalties via legislation is really tough. Have you seen any movement of this in North America with people you're dealing with? Yeah, I think, uh, but it's all at the city level, really. New York, Chicago's got its energy benchmarking and, and, you know, the cities like Chicago and New York have that now where not only are they benchmarked, but you can look publicly at the data and that's quite powerful because if you're you know, even halfway responsible property owner and you know that people are looking at your building and it's like a D or an E, you might want to do something about it. So I think that the real action in North America is always at the city level, much more than obviously at even state or, or federal level. Robert, that reminds me of what Saeed Alaba said. He is the chairman of the Green Building Council in the UAE. And he said all the action and all the solutions are going to come from the city and municipal level. And that's pretty much what Stephen's saying here, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that... I think you're right there, Stephen. The solutions are going to come from the city and municipal level because they've got the flexibility to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot less political at that level. I mean, it's, a, it's political locally, but you know, it's a lot easier to implement, I guess. And uh, yeah, maybe that's... So I was going to say, that I think, and of course the other driver of that now, which has become a hot topic over the last, well, certainly a couple of years here and elsewhere, is just air quality. So it's quite interesting that the air quality agenda is driving some of that. Yeah, that's another thing Saeed noticed. He was, when we interviewed him, he was at a conference in India where, you know, air quality was everything they were talking about, right? <clears throat> and, you know, that was going down to efficiency and type of fuel used at power stations. Yes. And yeah. now that was falling out. Early last November where the AQI hit 550. Yeah. And all my Californian friends are complaining about the air quality from the fire at 250 or something like that. Exactly. Right. So I was going to, one thing I want to ask you about, I, when I say this, all the young people that used to work for me looked at me like I was horrific, which I probably am. But I say you cannot have mass decarbonization and uh, you've got to go down to French. The French are right. As an Englishman, obviously, this kills me to say this, but <laughs> the, French, the French were right. You know, nuclear power, if you want to do clean air and deliver lots of energy at scale, nuclear power is it. How do you feel about that? 
Well, I, I've had varying positions on nuclear of the years, meaning having studied in that period when, when the future was coal, nuclear and conservation, as we yeah. said. And yeah. uh, I think the, the problem I have with nuclear is cost. No, no financial institution will ever buy it because of the risks. And I think the choice of technology, I'm not against nuclear power per se, I think that it's well within our ability, and we've kind of done it in the past, to develop reactor systems that are much safer, inherently safer than the technology we use. But we went down a certain technological route because of the history of nuclear power, which essentially came out of PWRs and submarine technology and, and all the rest of it. So I think we've, we've kind of walked into a a certain technological route, which is the wrong one. I, I wouldn't say I'm against nuclear power, I'm just against that sort of technology. And I think the idea of, you know, we, and we've seen it with the projects, like the project here being late and the finished project, you know, the, the overruns on the budgets, putting aside any safety issues, just as an investor, you'd go, why would I, why would I even touch it? Unless I'm like EDF and I have the British government guaranteeing it for 30 years and uh, all the rest of it, you know, there's just no way that you want to touch it. And I, and I also think there's, you know, a lot of talk about SMRs, small modular reactors, but when you look at that, most of them are just kind of tiny PWRs, really. Yeah, but isn't the future nuclear like P3 or P3, we call it in North America, public-private finance initiative, which is basically design, build, finance, maintain? Yeah, I, I could be, but again, you know, I just think the performance and the insurance aspects, the financial performance is, is not there. I also think that what's happened because of the huge uptake of, of solar and renewables, this, again, you know, we all kind of slightly imprisoned in the way of thinking that we were, were taught. We always thought about baseload, you know, you had to have your baseload, then you had your next level and, and more flexible and so on until you had the peakers right at the top of the tree. And actually, I think with data and all the other things that we were talking about, that actually you can start to manage that flexibility. And also, of course, you, you no longer have a world where we're just consumers. We're producers and consumers, so mm. prosumers, to use Alvin Doffler's word. And so you've got so much more flexibility in that maybe you just don't need that sort of 24-7 baseload anymore. I, I, you know, we're, we're away, away from that yet, but I think it's heading that way. Stephen, I have a question regarding going back to the investment, the returns on these investments. Are you seeing the institutional money using these tools to diversify portfolios and maybe do some risk diffusion? Or are you actually seeing that money traveling to those tools because there's an actual better return than, say, what, as, what else is available in the marketplace? I think you've got, at the moment, because it's still a, a sort of nascent market, you've got pioneers, as I call them, who are seeing it as an opportunity and, and seeing the, the real potential, both in a, as a huge market, but also as a decarbonisation mechanism. So those pioneers are moving in and experimenting, some experimenting at scale, but the, what they're finding is the returns are pretty good and fairly robust across the portfolio. Despite what I said about performance earlier, I think what data we do have shows that actually portfolios of energy efficiency projects on balance perform quite well. In a big portfolio, there'll be some that don't work and there'll be some that overperform, but on balance, it's pretty good and, and reasonably good long-term returns. So it gives you good yield, you know, and what investors want Right now is long-term stable returns a year. So are we talking six, seven percent? Are we, you know, we, and so it's actually a two-part question. So what are in fact the returns, and then what also are governments around the world doing in terms of taxation on those returns? Is there favorable policies that encourage investment so that, that you know after-tax dollars is much higher in the in the renewable world? I haven't seen much of that. I think there are some. Areas like the UK where there's extra capital allowances for type of equipment, which does affect the, the return for corporates. In terms of return, I think what, what you're starting to see 
is the emergence of yield codes like we've had in renewables, so where people have aggregated projects and then come to the market and are offering returns to the end investors of five, six, maybe mm-hmm. seven. I think the underlying projects can be much better than that. And also, I think there's a real scope for developers of projects to make higher returns, just like they do in renewables. But again, mm-hmm. that is only just emerging, you know, because at the end of the day, development of an energy efficiency project, just like developing a wind farm or developing a new car or new building, is a risky activity. You're not quite sure what's going to happen. Lots of reasons could come up that stop the project or reduce the project. So we always have to differentiate between development, which whatever you're developing is a high risk and should be a high return activity, and then the performance period of the project, which should be for an energy efficiency, should be a long-term yielding return, you know, like a a debt return, but a reasonably good debt return, really. I mean, in a way, it should perform like a bond, right? And in the world of in a world of negative interest rates and low interest rates everywhere, I would have thought these would be attractive to say pension funds, but I guess there's the scale's mm. just not there. Have the they, scale is the issue, absolutely. Yeah. Have they have have any of the projects been rated by the agencies, like, you know, giving them a triple A or a double or a triple B or Well again that comes down to scale because yeah. if you've ever gone to a rating agency and said rate my project, you'd know that it doesn't come cheap. No. <laughs> it's just like they are pretty expensive. So you need a pretty big project to justify it. I think, you know, we're, we're going to start to see that in portfolios of projects. I think also the bond market and particularly the green bond market is fascinated by energy efficiency and sees it as a massive potential. But you need something in the middle to aggregate projects, get them working, and then refinance using bonds. And we've had a couple of examples. One not so good example, which I can give, and then one good example more recently. So a few years ago, one of the big corporates issued some green bonds and said one of the uses was energy-efficient buildings or factories around the world. And when it was dug into and and looked into, what they really meant was just building new factories to the code. Mm. Well, in my book and lots of other people's work, that's not energy efficiency because you've got to build to code anyway. Yeah. If it had been a, if it had been like a factory built to passive standards or with you know ten percent of the energy of a normal factory, then you're talking. Anyway, that was highly controversial, and some green bond investors said, "We don't like that. We're not buying your bond." And then the one very recently, which is in a different technological area, but is sold as an energy efficient bond was Telefonica. And Telefonica is running out cable networks, fiber optic networks to the home. And part of the rationale for it being a green bond is the energy efficiency or energy performance of a fiber optic network is a lot higher than a copper one. So that was quite an interesting development, I thought. That sounds like a bit of a stretch to me, but if they're getting green finance, yeah, I mean, good on yeah, them. to be careful about greenwashing and, yeah. and so on. And, that, and yeah. that's a huge issue in the bond market is how do you, and, and again, the EU is doing a lot of work on this. How do you actually determine that this investment actually is green? And that's where we, again, coming back to the pay for performance, you know, the more metering and the more data we have on stuff, the better it is. And if anybody can aggregate, you know, a couple of hundred million or 500 million of projects, you could, after a few years, you should certainly be able to issue a green bond. The problem is aggregating projects at that scale. You, you yeah. know, 50 million, it's huge. Five million in projects are pretty big. So where do you see best practice at the moment? What countries represent best practice? Again, different examples in different sectors, really. I think when you look at, energy performance contracting in the traditional sense that we talked about. You know, there's some good examples here in the UK of procurement frameworks that have been built up that allow hospitals, hospitals being a particular sector, to go through that development process and end up with a, a finance project at the end of the day. And that that's a really good model that other countries should copy in that sector. I think it works. And then in Dubai, with the Etihad Super Esco, again, 
owned by the Electricity and Water Authority, and they're doing energy performance contracting, but again, doing at scale. They won't just do one building. They'll talk to all the landlords who have 20 or 50 or 100 buildings and say, we'll do your whole portfolio on energy performance contracting. We will develop the projects. Then we'll go out to the market and get ESCOs, right. big ESCOs to do it. And by the way, we're bringing in finance, which in some cases is Sharia finance, which is ideal. So that's a really, again, a good way of doing ESCOs at scale. And then when you start thinking about the smaller scale stuff, again, the big, I mean, one area, of course, where the US and Canada, to a certain extent, has led is property-assessed clean energy, PACE. And it's driven by a specific way of doing property taxes, which is unique, although some other countries have similar ones, but I'd say it's pretty unique. But it's also uniform across the entire US, and that enables PACE. But the Irrespective of the financing, I think what the people who've made PACE work at the small scale, say the residential scale, is facilitated and enabled the contractors who are interacting with the customers to sell a bigger package of measures and bring the finance. So, you know, what happens when your air conditioning breaks down or here your boiler breaks down, you phone your contractor in US terms and normally They'd come along and say, oh, you need a new air conditioning unit. It's Here's an XYZ, blah, 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 number, and I'll have it next Wednesday. And so you miss the opportunity to do any kind of meaningful retrofit. So I think the yeah. best pace operators have trained those people to say, oh, well, I could do that, or I could do this, this, and this, and this, and this whole house thing. And by the way, here's some really low-cost finance, which means – you'll be quids in, so or you'll be saving from day one. So that kind of making that point of interaction more useful so that you're not just selling a boiler or selling an air conditioning, that's a really good example of providing the tools to get to a sort of bigger whole house retrofit. But again, it's got to be sold on the, the benefits the customer wants. The customer doesn't just want a lower energy bill. So that, yeah, that, that would be the example at the other end of the scale. And then my final one, if I can, would just be from India, where EESL, Energy Efficiency Services Limited, which is a state-owned super ESCO, right. you know, what they've done incredibly well, and you know, we, have, we have a partnership with them here, but what they've done incredibly well in India is aggregated demand. And they started from, for LEDs, so they went to all the local authorities and public authorities and said, okay, if you went to LED, how much, how many LEDs would you do? And they actually were able to finance them because it works for the utility to actually have lower demand. And they just aggregated massive demand and they brought the prices of LEDs down by some huge ratio such that I think they've done 300 million plus LEDs. And now they're using that same model for smart meters and other energy efficiency measures, and they're actually applying it to electric vehicles and aggregating demand for electric vehicles from the Indian government. So that sort of procurement at scale is a good example. Yeah, that's interesting because the the ability to just – sell someone a new gadget is enormous, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it sounds like the easy solution. And uh, that Indian example was really interesting because they're such a large-scale economy, right? I mean, it's 1.1 billion or 1.4 billion (laughs) people. You know, when you apply at that scale, it's it's interesting. That's why the EU, in some ways, is a good idea, right? Because you're aggregating a market of 550 million people. Yes, yeah. And and the smart meter example is very interesting from India yeah. because they're going straight to pay-as-you-go smart meters enabled by your mobile phone. But what that does is reduce lost sales for the utility such that the whole project pays for itself very quickly. That's interesting. Listen, we're coming up on the hour now, so we're going we're gonna to wind down. We normally ask our guests two quick-fire questions, one from each of us. And we tend to be talking to a lot of design professionals, which... You're not. But one one question I want to ask you is, what is the path? If I am listening to this podcast and I've just finished my A-levels 
and I'm thinking about what university I want to go to and what courses I want to do, if I want to work in energy efficiency, what's the best path to that to be go from being a student to a professional? Okay, so I think on the design side, I want to for new build and also retrofit, you know, passive house and that kind of applying that kind of standard. That would be the approach I would take if I was starting again, I think, um, purely from a technical design point of view. Yeah, so having the design fundamentals under your belt before you even get into solving this bigger problem is a good idea is what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think we fundamentally need that. Without that, then we, we won't get the performance we need and the investors won't be interested. So there you go. Engineers matter. Good news over it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I still count myself as an engineer. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because when you when you look at those that have an engineering degree followed up with an MBA or some other finance education, they're an incredible asset to well the world really. You know, it, because ultimately you're trying to solve technical problems, but there's a financial component to it. So, Stephen, if you you know, we're, I mean, and Adam made the point, we, we typically address those that are from the engineering architectural community, but it seems to me that there's also a business case here and that, that we ought to have some words of advice for those that maybe are traveling down the business route of education, that maybe they should also keep their eye on these energy opportunities. Would you have any advice for the, the business student, the finance student entering their education and, and maybe to find a way to have them join this industry because obviously their skills are needed. Yeah, sure. And I think that's really about the whole sustainable finance movement, which is accelerating every day, really, and uh, risk impact investing, responsible investment. You know, I think that's it's a trillion dollar opportunity and that's that's attractive to work in. It's going to be a trillion dollar opportunity for the next you know, 50 years plus. So if you're starting now, it's a pretty good place to look for a, a career. And a large part of that sustainable finance is around financing the energy transition. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So Great the way I'd summarize that is, you know, what you're saying is this is probably a good way to wrap up. If you're young and you're at the start of your career, there's a trillion dollar industry here with a T, not a B, <laughs> trillion dollar <laughs> industry, right? Yeah. That is waiting to be financialized. Yeah, exactly. Because if you think that we spend about six trillion a year on energy, I think last time I looked at a number, which is a while back. So if we can save twenty percent of that, you know, it's wow, twelve one two trillion. That's big money. Yeah, you're really yeah. talking big money once you get to trillions. Yeah. yeah. So wow. To bring the oh. final Canadian analogy here is right. You got to skate to where the puck is on the ice rink, <laughs> and the puck is is at the intersection of retrofits, of um, financialization of the energy industry, right, and the innovation all around that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So take note if you're young, and if you're like me, retire as soon as you can. <laughs> <laughs> And put yeah. your pension into green bonds doing energy efficiency. That's it, man. If I could invest in vertical farming and green bonds, I'd be happy with that. But as you <laughs> say, it's just not a lot of choice out there at the moment, right? No, that's the problem. Yeah. All right. So, Stephen, thank you very much for coming on. That was excellent. It was really good to get the money side of the argument and uh, of the, just, just an understanding of that. I, I got some great notes off this. I loved your uh, definition of stranded assets and you know the, the yeah. whole thing like nobody wakes up wanting to buy energy efficiency that was hilarious yeah yeah, yeah. okay well it's been it's been a pleasure from my side too good to, good to talk to you both okay thanks David appreciate it thank All you right. very much take thanks. care thanks bye bye Adam uh, wow you know we we needed uh, Stephen on because he brings obviously another side of the discussion which is incredibly important he did a great job describing the challenges and but also the huge opportunities and he had some great advice for students what were your thoughts yeah i mean the financial side is you know, is almost when you're going through an engineering degree it's almost like considered rude to talk about money do you know what i mean yeah <laughs> you know, right it's you know because you're 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 doing your quadratic equations your calculus and you're above all that right Right. You know, you're a paid professional. That money stuff is for the poor people to worry about. <laughs> so, you know, there is a fun, financial – when I started working in 1980, what I didn't realize, and, you know, who does, what I was at the beginning of was the financialization of everything, 
loans, mm-hmm. mortgages, houses, you know, all the bubbles that were blown because of that. But what I think we're at the cusp of here is the financialization of other things, right? Like energy. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I listened to this podcast yesterday. It was an economist 10-minute thing. And this when we went down to Chile to just to look at why is Chile so successful and everyone around it is just it's a it's a show for economists by economists so it, it's about economists right and i'm saying it was about these free market guys who came there from the states and implemented all these free market policies so consequently you can have an open top porsche and drive around santiago where i've been and you don't get mugged you can't do that anywhere else in south america right yeah and they went into a mcdonald's and they bought mcdonald's and you pay for it you can pay for it in four parts with, with no interest, or you can pay for it in nine parts with interest. So they financialized everything down to a McDonald's. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but some people like to pay like that, right? Why not? It's all yep. electronic. So, you know, if you can financialize a Big Mac, <laughs> you can financialize anything as far as Absolutely. I'm concerned, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he had so many great comments in terms of, Financing and you know you, of course, Sean, right up to the whole non-energy benefit yeah. side of it, as I did because I just he was speaking my language. But this pay for performance, you know, goes not only to the energy side but also to the IEQ part of it, the lighting, the sound, right? So, you know, post occupancy evaluation, and again, it all ties back. You know, we had we were talking to somebody about the Internet of Things, and you know, I'm starting to see where there's an actual utilitarian benefit for the IOT as it relates to the performance of buildings and paying for performance of buildings that I didn't see before. And, you know, we know that if people can then do live post occupancy evaluations on a building, and then that can correlate to an energy, then there is a metric there. IEQ per dollar of utility cost per square meter of building. And now we have a metric that can be used around the world to prove, well, so many things, you know, the the operational cost, the performance cost, the productivity, all of these types of things. I think we're going to see a new metric come out of this in the near future. I think you are. For sure. And it goes, so what Matthew said about smart buildings is you're certainly experienced. That's exactly what he was saying. You know, energy efficiency is an emergent property and it's about the experience, right? So he was on the money there. Yeah. And, you know, the Internet of Things, God, I hate that word. I've got to find another way of saying that. But, you know, as the cost to measure things and the technology to measure things accurately, the cost goes down and technology increases. Yeah. Then you're going to see that problem he was talking about being solved, which is measurability. Yeah. Right? Then, and that can be in a public open source database. You, know, you think of Energy Star, that's an open source database, right? Yep. It's an awesome tool. Right? And there's your benchmarking, right? That problem solved. So totally. if you can if you can open source database results, and that can be done through legislation at city level, you know these things are really close to moving in a big step in a big way, right? There's a convergence of things happening at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We're seeing that in our podcast, right? Yeah, that's so cool. And so you know, I always keep going back to what Steve Burrows said. This is the best time to be in. Building engineering, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that that guy was wise, very wise when he said that. So yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, it's all about the money. That's why they call it money. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Awesome. Okay. All right, listen, that was great, Adam. I yeah, I'm, I'm now I you know I'm really motivated right now to just think yeah. about what what we just discussed. Yeah, I, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Let's, so let's, let's come back. Let's come back to that. We should do a follow up show on this one for sure. Yeah, we should do a follow up. We should. There's a. We should do a, at the end of the year. We should brainstorm what potential business opportunities come out from what we've learned. Mm, yeah, because my my brain's buzzing at the moment. Yeah, mine too. Yeah. Okay, man. That was All great. Right. Have a good one. That was a pleasure, man. Take care. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. 
because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. <laughs> 